Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today I'm interviewing Steve, Jenny, and Sequoia, who are with Chaos Springs Farm in New Zealand. Um, Jenny and Steve have been farming since 1983, first in Utah, running um, a farm. And then in 2001, they purchased a farm in New Zealand where they farm today. Um, Sequoia is their daughter, and she runs the social media for the company from Toronto. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks. So, all right, I've got to ask, first Utah, then um, New Zealand, what prompted the change? Well, um, Jenny's from New Zealand, and so ah. when she got married, she moved to Utah for 20 years. The agreement was that we'd leave in seven, so, you know, we're <laughs> so then 20 years later, here we are. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense then. And so you've been farming for nearly 40 years. Talk to us about what started you on the journey. Nearly 40 years, yeah. Um, well, really, it's Jenny's a, from a farming family, and she's a trained horticulturist. So when she came to Utah, um, she wanted to grow things. We bought a small two-and-a-half-acre property in the high mountains of Utah, and she started growing things, which is what she does, uh, and developed a fresh herb and lettuce business there over, um, well, over 20 years, really, um, selling to restaurants and grocery stores. So it started with Jenny. Awesome. Okay. So then farming there in Utah, that's not an easy environment to farm in. No, we were at 6,000 feet. Um, it was frost every month of the year. Um, you know, three used to be two to three feet of snow for four months of the year. Yeah, it was challenging, but it was very good uh, climate for growing herbs and lettuce in particular. Mm. Uh, and we had, we were just out of Salt Lake City. And so we had a big market, a million people in Salt Lake City and, and uh, resort towns all around. So there's a very good market for what we do, for what we did then. And, and that business, Ranui Gardens, is still running today, doing basically the same thing under uh, new ownership. Gotcha. So talk to us about, you know, lettuce farming back that, that was different varieties. They didn't obviously have the Salanovas that we have now and the one cut lettuces um, kind of what, and you just didn't have the education that we have available to us. So uh, Jenny, when you started kind of where were your uh, mentors or what were you looking at for education? Um, well, because we, we, we lived and there was no one doing what we were doing. Um, I pretty much had to figure it out myself. And um, I, I do, do come from that, you know, family of, um, well, seed merchants. And, um, and I also had a, have a degree in horticulture. Not that that did me much good, actually, for what we were doing, it, although it does give you a baseline of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I just, um, I had to figure it out myself and just went through all the catalogs and started growing things and finding out what, what would do well and what wouldn't do well and go for, you know, work, work it that way. So, um, yeah, I had to say it was pretty much sorting it out for myself. Um, I did 
finally found the you know seed companies that I trusted and would work for me and one being Johnny's selected seeds mm-hmm. um so yeah it was um it was that that's just how it was um we were Ranui Gardens was the first certified organic property in Utah and first certified biodynamic property in Utah oh wow so you're the first biodynamic and certified organic property that is so cool yeah in Utah in 19 what day you get I think we got certified in 85 85 yeah but we started uh, yeah that would well, be right yeah yeah it was a, it was wonderful it was really wonderful we we used a lot of um row covers and mm-hmm. re, uh, poly greenhouse and that sort of thing as well gotcha yeah you got to love those greenhouses especially in the super super cold climates yeah it was amazing so, all right. So you stayed there for 20 years farming there. Let's talk about, you know, thinking about the transition because, you know, transition to a whole new country, a whole new climate was going to be quite challenging. What were kind of like the things that you were had in the front of your mind when you were thinking about that, that move? Well, I, you know, we've been taking lettuce for nearly 20 years. So we were, we'd, we'd done that. We had good people on board that were ready to take over. So we were just ready for something new. And we didn't really know what we were going to do when we came here. Um, and it took us quite a while to find a property. We were just looking for something similar to do something kind of like what we had done before. But in the end, we found this amazing piece of ground, which was 200 acres. And so um, we managed to purchase that. And we kind of looked at each other, I think, and said, well, now what? Um, and we just really kind of started all over and figured it out from the seat of our pants. We um, um, I don't think there was as that much forethought into it. We were just ready for a change, really. Yeah, so we just, just took the land and, and started to almost like you'd say take a picture um, and started, did what we felt we wanted to create on the land. It, it just came to us, really. We raised dairy heifers, which we had a lot of grass. We had to keep eating. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it just evolved really with the knowledge that we had and we worked together as a team yeah we do i have to tell a story though that the whole time we were in utah because jenny grew up in a fairly moderate climate she would always make the comment oh (laughs) i'm so looking forward to one day being in new zealand it's so tough in utah with the frost and um i'll be really looking forward to being in a place where it'll be a bit easier and after the first couple of years here where the soils were so different, we were in a place that it rained, um, you know, six feet yeah. a year um, and all the different changes. I remember one day Jenny looked at me and said, you know, it was so easy in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess the big lesson there was that farming's never easy, but you've just got to work with what you've got and figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 72 inches of rain a year. So that's almost as much as I was just down in Asheville for, a, a, with a client and uh, they've commented that it's a hundred inches of rain down there a year. Um, that's a lot of rain. It's almost a, you almost have a uh, rainforest effect. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it would be subtropical, but it's a bit colder than that. Yeah. Yeah. So Sequoia, you, did you stay or did you actually go over them with them at that point for some years before you came back to Toronto? Yeah. So uh, I lived in Utah with them, obviously. And then we moved to New Zealand when I was nine full time. Uh, And so I lived there for nine years until I was 18. uh, And then I moved to Toronto. Gotcha. Cool. 
Um, and so at the, when you were 18 and at the Toronto, did you, were you st still involved in the business or did you kind of take a break and then come back? How did that all work? Uh, no, I wasn't the, I've only been the social media manager for, oh, what has it been? Mom pops like through two or three years. Right. Yeah. I want to say, um, they had somebody, uh, doing it prior to me, um, that lived on the property, but when she moved away, uh, I mm. kind of was like, maybe it would be fun for, for me to get involved and, and do that aspect of it. But yeah. no, I was, I was very much the kid on the farm that didn't want to have anything to do with the farm. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Now, so that's, that's, let's talk a little bit more about that. And that's, you know, that's something right now. I have a four and a six-year-old and the other night they commented because they had to leave story time because I forget what we had to go do with the farm. And they're like, man, we just need don't have the farm because we want to do X. And obviously my wife and I are very intentional to try to give them time. And we, you know, we take Sundays off and that's family day. And so we do whatever kind of that's um, doable with them on those days. But like, um, you know, how do you, you know, you raise kids on the farm. How do you um, kind of like try to bring them in and have them involved with it? Um, tricky business. Yeah, it's pretty tricky. I, I think you've just got to, if they, if there's an interest there, you nurture it. And if there's not, there's not much you can do. Oh. Um, <laughs> we were in Utah. Sequoia was really quite interested in the garden. She knew all the plants. and, and I still um, do. When we came here, she became a teenager, and teenagers don't like what their parents did. <laughs> <laughs> she was pretty, she was here. I think she enjoyed living here, but she was pretty removed from, from what we did on the farm during, especially the last few years that, that she was here. Um, and she left really quickly. But <laughs> uh, I think maybe she made a comment the other day that she, she kind of missed hearing people talk about farming. And so, that was encouraging anyway, that she has a little, there's, <laughs> I think we, we, we planted the seeds. They're in there somewhere. Um, yeah. And she does grow an amazing garden on her yeah. balcony of her ninth story apartment. So there's some, there's some green fingers in there. Very cool. Uh, okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, the current farm. Cause you've got, that's kind of changed. And especially now that you're doing a lot with compost tea, and I want to get into that a little bit later. Um, but so the current farm is around 200 acres. You talked about you know, heifers um, and you do some vegetables and stuff. So talk to us like all the different kind of enterprises that are on property now. When we got here, I was really, we couldn't grow trees in Utah. It was too cold. Too cold. They wouldn't, virtually didn't grow there. So I wanted to plant some trees So I in an orchard. So I planted, I had a desire to grow lemons. So I planted, uh, we planted 280 lemons trees and, um, and a variety of um, orcharding other trees just for a more self-sufficiency, apples, pears, just so that down the road we'd have plenty of our own fruit, nuts. Um, and then... Uh, let's see, uh, in the vegetable line, I kept my garlic growing going. I grew quite good, well, very good garlic in Utah, which is still growing there, but here. So I had, I continued to grow some garlic here. But it proved, it's a lot harder to grow here than in Utah due to the um, damp climate. Mm -hmm. Because we get rust disease here in the garlic, which makes it a lot harder. Now, do you guys get the necessary cold enough for it to uh, properly um, scarify, or um, do you have trouble uh, with that? Yeah, it could be something to do with that. Although, even in the South Island, where it gets cold down there, they seem they still get rust down there. Okay. But 
Yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's that, but I mean, it, it doesn't get really cold in the winter. It gets down to minus well, minus four degrees Celsius. Say. Yeah, so that's maybe twenties. Yeah, yeah, higher upper twenties. Um, gosh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's not nothing like Utah. No. Yeah, you get some you get some hard frosts pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's yeah. what we yeah. get. Yeah, in Utah, you're burying your frost line six feet. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyways, grow that, and then um, oh, we try we we did a, some Maori potatoes. They called so so specialty potatoes. We did those for a little well, while too. Quite a few years. Quite a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. did. Yeah, um, and just sold. They went to farmers markets, and mm-hmm. and, um, and then we plant because we had. Uh, they call gorse a problem. Gorse is a weed that has a lot of prickles um, on the hillsides, and we organic. We couldn't spray. We wouldn't spray uh, herbicide. Then we decided to plant forestry trees. So we planted um, uh, how many acres? About twenty acres. Twenty acres. About um, we planted seven thousand redwood trees, sequoia trees, and fifteen hundred lusitanicas and eight hundred cowrie trees which are the native New Zealand trees on those areas in 2002 and now those areas have 40 um, yeah that's pretty amazing so yeah is there anything else we did well oh compost of course yeah the compost but as far as the farming operation yeah. there's there's the, the orcharding and the mainly citrus and then there's the um, not we don't do much vegetable growing anymore, but Jenny does go a large garden, and that produce goes locally. Um, and then we ship the lemons and the citrus, and then we get apples and pears at different kind times of year, and plums, and those are shipped to the cities, um, Auckland and Wellington. Um, then the dairy grazers, of course, we have uh, certified organic uh, animals from a dairy from two different dairy farms here. And that they come in for a year. So we get them as young animals and we raise them up for a year. And then they go back to the dairy farms to calve and, and be part of the, the milking herd. So we get a new lot every year. Then the, the forestry trees, basically. And then that's really all of the farming operation. Mm-hmm. Now, the forestry trees, have you started to thin that? Is that? Or is that how many years away are you from starting to do that? Well, we, we, we haven't thinned or pruned. And uh, there's a bit of controversy whether or not we should have done that. Um, there's a school of thought that says we've made a big mistake. And there's another school of thought that said we saved ourselves a lot of work and we'll be fine. So um, those yeah. trees are up to probably a foot to some of them are probably over a foot, foot and a half in diameter. And they're 30, 40 feet tall. They're probably still 10 to 15 years away from harvest. So whether or not that will be our job or someone else's job is hard to say, but they've, it's been the, one of the most amazing things we've done on the farm because it's just transformed the farm into a totally different place. And it's been amazing to watch those trees in 20 years grow to that size. Yes. Well, you've got the climate for it too, because it doesn't get that cold. So you can have almost year round growing for them and you have the moisture. So they grow super fast. Um, yeah. Now, did you pick the spots for that to kind of like, um, you know, steeper areas or how did you locate those 20 acres on the farm? Yeah, it was all the areas we couldn't get a tractor on. Okay. Uh, and that we had major, this, uh, the, the plant called gorse is really more like a, a tree weed, weed tree. Um, it grows huge and it just takes over. 
Um, and it's a, but it's a good plant. It's a nitrogen fixer. So basically, we just went in and planted amongst okay. that, and so that it was pretty easy decision where to put them. Gotcha. Now, can you graze up in there, or is it too steep for grazing? No, we don't graze those areas. There's no grass in anyway. It's totally shaded out. There's nothing under them now. Okay, because it's so thick. Interesting. Yeah. Now, when they do harvest, would you go back into, um, you know, are they going to selective harvest or what's the next aspect of that? Well, I've always thought that we would select only selective harvest. And then kind of my vision was, especially if I lived long enough, as I'd become a woodworker, we'd start Uh making out furniture. And one of the beauties of redwoods is they coppice. So you don't have to replant them. You cut them down and they regrow. Uh Aha. That is really cool. I did not know that. So then basically you could woodwork for forever because you cut a few trees and then more would keep growing throughout that to 20 acres. Yeah. And it's hard to say if that would actually work or, but you know, the idea of clear cutting those forests after watching them grow your whole, you know, for 20 yeah. or 30. Yeah. I don't think that will happen. We'd, yeah. we'd take them out. No, yeah. no, I don't think so. They're so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. They might never. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you've got the, um, you've got the fruits and vegetables. So that's kind of the, so looking at that, the, the, um, the tree crops or the, your wood, that is still like an, a maturing um, thing. The, <laughs> the cows switch out every single year. So it's a new batch that comes in. And then obviously you've got the, the fruit and the vegetables that are every single year now. So let's move right into, we talk about marketing a little bit. I wanted to involve Sequoia in this um, with the social media. Um, what is kind of like the goal with that? Or is the social media more for the compost operation, especially since you're doing more of the social, the um, compost teas? Um, it's a little bit of both. Uh, really it's whatever, generally it's kind of whatever is going on. Uh, okay. at the farm in the day-to-day, it's been really helpful to kind of engage the, both the local and the wider field audience and just what's happening. Um, so yeah. the way we work it is like, mom will send me pictures kind of once a week of what's going on. And then I will write spiels and captions. We do a bit more of a push if we've got a, you know, a new product, if something either uh, vegetable or uh, mineral, I guess. No. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, if, we are putting out a new uh, version of our dynamic mixers or something. We do a push for that. Um, we were recently at the big uh, agricultural field day in New Zealand, which is called Field Days, um, mm-hmm. and so we did a big push for our for our sprayers. We just released a new uh, twenty five hundred liter Papa. Twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand liter. There we go. Yeah, 25,000 liter uh, sprayer, and so um, yeah, so we we market the machines, but also like if we have produce that's in season or whatever, just to mm-hmm. get the word out. And it, it's been pretty successful actually. Um, so, yeah. So you run one Facebook page for both enterprises or both parts of the business? At this stage, yes. Um, mostly because I run it and I run it for, remotely. Um, we are in talks actually to start a new Facebook page just for the uh, the equipment. Um, mm-hmm. But as I don't, have a, I don't have enough knowledge to run a full Facebook page for that, but there's... Um, some people that help out with that side of the business that are interested in taking that on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, cool. Now let's move a little bit and start talking about the, um, the, uh, the tea and the mixers and all of that. So how did that become a thing in your business? Well, 
um, when we were in the States, we were in the composting business as well. Mm -hmm. That was part of our operation. We had a small composting uh, facility where we took um, basically manure from a stockyard type dairy where the animals never saw a blade of grass and we took the manure off the concrete. And we mixed it with mostly with straw because it was locally available and we made a, a composted product there that we sold to nurseries and, and home gardeners mainly. <clears throat> and so when we came to New Zealand and we were very successful in our growing operation there by using compost and that's really all we used. And so we knew compost worked um, and had a lot of confidence in that. But when we came to Utah or to New Zealand and bought 200 acres and we looked at composting 200 acres, we went, well, let's see, that's a good way to go broke. Um, yeah. And the other thing is the soils were just so different here. You know, in Utah, we had soils that were a half a percent organic matter. Um, fairly high minerally rich soils in Utah um, and low rainfall. And here, you know, we had high rainfall. We had very high organic matter soils. Um, the theory is that they're a bit low in mineral, but we could have a long discussion on that. And so we didn't really feel like composting was the thing to do because we had plenty of organic matter in the mm. soil. So we, at that time, because um, I'd been in the composting business from about 1993 um, for a number of years. And I originally studied through some people called the Lubkeys in Austria about composting, um, which taught me a lot about composting, but it didn't answer a lot of questions. And in the late 90s, um, I ran across Elaine Ingham and mm -hmm. compost tea. And so when we came to New Zealand, um, it compost tea made a lot of sense because we could use a small amount of compost and go over a large area. So we just launched into um, trying to figure out how to do compost tea. And that kind of started the whole journey. All right, cool. All right. So let's back up a little bit about compost here. So when you, your half percent organic matter in Utah, what's the organic matter percentage in New Zealand? It's between 10 and about, well, on this farm, it's between 10 and about almost 20%. Oh my gosh. Now, is it a lot heavier soil or is it just more of a mucky um, black dirt? No, we're actually on a very light ash soil. Uh, the Most of the North Island was covered in ash from a, a gigantic uh, volcanic explosion that created Lake Taupo in the middle of the North Island. So we have deep ash soils, but just because it's a moderate climate and things grow and die really quickly here, the organic matter levels are really high. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So then small amounts of compost and then in the compost tea. Um, and then obviously there was a problem with getting it spread because you started to figure out systems around that. Yeah. Well, um, it was a really interesting journey with the compost tea because although we saw some amazing results from doing compost tea, and then we also were making plant extracts out of, uh, well, the biggest one was there's a plant here called ragwort that basically... Okay. Most of the farm was covered in this beautiful yellow flower, which most farmers hate because it takes over the pastoral system. So we, we, we start on a program making compost teas and then we made all these extracts out of, well, first ragwort thistles and, um, and we started putting all those concoctions together. And we saw amazing results. We saw ragwort just disappear mm. in a couple of years as a result of that. And we had, you know, we had, farmers come that said, what are you doing? He says, I've, I've 
been trying to get rid of ragwort for 40 years and I've still got it. Mm. We sort of try to explain what we found and most of them would just kind of look up into the sky and walk away. But mm-hmm. um, so anyway, the problem we had with compost tea was that in compost tea, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with compost tea. There's, um, depending on how you do it, there's quite a lot of particulate in it and it's, it's hard to go through a conventional sprayer. So we did many, many modifications on our sprayers to try to be able to spray out these heavy particulate um, mixes. And eventually we just threw the whole lot away and started from scratch and tried to figure out what we needed to do to be able to spray things with particulate in it. And once we'd done that and developed our first sprayers, we realized that maybe we didn't really need to brew compost tea. Maybe we could just put the compost in the sprayer and spray it out. And Uh once we started doing that, we found that we had simplified the whole compost tea um, system quite a bit. It was different. It's not the same as compost tea. Compost tea is brewed over time and, you know, you brew up the organisms, but we had some thinking around that, uh, that made us think that that maybe wasn't necessary, at least for soil building. So basically that was the journey that we went on and we developed the the sprayers. And then interestingly enough, once we started to, to sell a few of them and promoting the idea of spraying compost, most people just looked at it and said, well, I don't use compost, but I do all these other things and that sprayer Mm -hmm. all works for me. So mostly the sprayers now are used for people doing fine particle mineral applications oh, with, interesting. Yep. with the addition of biologicals, things like fish and seaweed. Okay. And the, the unique aspect of your sprayer is that it can actually put out a pretty large particulate through this, the spray system. Yeah, we can do a 50% solid mix, basically a slurry. Oh, wow. Wow. Put it out. And, and so, so you have a special, uh, like a diaphragm pump or... We actually used an open vein um, trash pump that we had designed specifically for the purpose. Here. Interesting. Yeah, and because um, there's there's debate about pumps with compost teas, but um, we've we've worked a lot. Um, I did actually the very first um, soil food web advisors course with Elaine Ingham in New York in 2003, and came back and was kind of um, quite connected to the soil food web lab here. As, yeah. as Cheryl Crew, um, um, sort of one of my colleagues, developed the, the lab. So we did lots of testing of compost extracts and teas, and we were pretty confident that we were getting good organism delivery through the systems we were using. So oh, yeah. yeah. So let's let's explain for for listeners because I think compost tea is something they hear magical things about, but they don't understand all what's happening when you apply compost tea. So let's talk like the benefits. And I know you do a lot of this on your website too. Um, so do you want to share that web address so people can go there? Because I know there's a lot there they can just go read. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a, a website with quite a bit of information at Chaos Springs, um, and. Oh, the, the address is, uh, well, www.chaossprings.co.nz okay. is the, um, um, the web address. And yeah, there's yeah. quite a bit of information on there of what we've learned over the years we've been here. And um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, probably you know, there was a big explosion of compost tea businesses and applications here when Elaine Ingham toured the country in, oh, 2000 four or five, right around in that. And there were lots of small compost tea business startup and lots of farmers embraced it. But 
compost tea is a little bit complicated for a lot of people. Um, and there's some, there's some reasons and the it being complicated um, basically stopped a lot of people from doing it, okay? You, if you think about it, you're putting um, compost in a liquid, you're brewing it over a certain period of time, you're putting some ingredients to supposedly get the populations of organisms to increase in the liquid and then put them out, right? Absolutely. And yep. It was too complicated for a lot of farmers to do because in farming, you know, you, you've got a plan today of what you're going to do. So you put on your compost tea in the morning and by the time it's time to put out, the plan's totally changed and you haven't got time to do it. So, uh -huh. um, so it, it was never, it, it went for a little while and then it sort of died out really. And there's, there's still people doing compost tea that way, but more what happens now is simple compost extracts. And there's a lot of logic in simple extracts because um, they, one, they're much simpler. You just do a short cycle of, of extraction and you just put the liquid out. But the other thing that, that went through my mind as we were on this compost tea journey was that, okay, you're creating a, an aerobic environment for organisms to populate, right? And then you're putting them out into a new environment and hoping they find their way. Mm -hmm. And we were, especially when we were straining out a lot of the particulate in the early sprayers, um, we would have this big pile of debris left over from the brewing process that wasn't going out onto the land. Mm. And what we noticed was it was growing, it was, it was growing beautiful fungi in this debris. And we looked at it and we said, well, that really needs to go out with the compost tea yeah. so that the organisms have a home. And so that's really when we went, no, we should be putting the whole mixture out together with the particulate in it. And the other thing we said, we've already got an aerobic environment out there. So really all we need to do is put the ingredients together and get them out there. And they should do fine. And they should do their populating out in the environment they're going to grow in. And I think we've pretty much proved that that works really well for soil building because that's just makes it much, much simpler to do. Yeah. And I, you know, I've done compost teas before and uh, we don't do a lot of them now. And, and, and it comes down to, like you said, it's just a little bit challenging and it's once it's like, I've got so many other things that need to happen. So um, if there was a simple way to put it on, then it absolutely would happen more. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. yeah. You get the job. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I haven't cultivated. There's some sex, couple sections here on the farm. I hadn't cultivated because I didn't have a sec, a, 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 a thing set up for it. And yesterday I finally set it up. It only took me 20 minutes and I was literally, it had delayed me from doing it by a month. And I, I was like, Oh my gosh, was that all that it really took? <laughs> so yeah. 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 yeah that's true. I, I think the other thing that, that, um, about compost teas is when you brew compost teas, the, the brewing environment is very specific. It's a specific uh -huh. temperature. It's a specific set of foods. So you're really brewing up a, 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 a very narrow range of organisms in my mind. And a lot of them get left out. I think when you just put the whole mix that's in the compost out there, you get a much better result. Yeah. You get the whole range of what's going on. So how fast from like when you put the compost in and um, do you uh, filter the compost before it goes in and make sure there's not rocks and stuff? How does that work? Yeah, we, we screen it with a six mil screen. So we, okay. we do have to screen it out. 
we, we use more than we would with a compost tea, but not near as much as you would with if you were doing dry compost, okay? Yeah. Because um, the water is a very good carrier. So, you know, we'll be putting on about, say, 100 liters of compost per hectare, um, 50 liters per acre, um, maybe two or three times a year around our farm. Okay. Well, that's, that's on the pastoral systems. Then the, uh, the orchards and the market gardens are a little different. Um, we still do a du- application of, of just direct compost into the garden areas, especially where they're cultivated uh, a lot um, in the growing areas. And, you know, in the orchard, we, um, we mostly just do a liquid application, a slurry application on the orchard a couple of times a year, but the concentration would be quite a bit higher. Gotcha. Okay. So it's less often, but a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So then do you do this like right before rain? Is that the ideal so that it gets washed in? Um, What's talk to us about the the application like windows. Well, on the, on the pastoral system, we basically follow the animals around. We do rotational grazing, holistic grazing. Yep. So the animals are moved every day. And about a week to 10 days after the animals have left a paddock, when there's a little bit of growth, then we do an application. We do it year round. Um, the other uh, thinking around that is that if I'm putting it on year round, I'm developing an organism base for all conditions. Mm. So yes, usually we like a, a, a bit of moisture. Ideally, if you can get a little bit of rain, that's good. But you know, there's organisms that work in the dry, there's organisms that work in the wet, the cold, the hot. So by putting them out through a variety of conditions, we feel like we're building a, a wider base. Mm-hmm. Uh, the orchards are a little bit different. We, um, we basically try to do a, a, a fall application around the base of the trees um, and then a spring application. Um, it's a little more random on the, on the orchard. Um, just because we're probably too busy to keep up on a lot of things. Um, and then we do do, I still do some long cycle brewing for foliar application in the orchard okay. I do this once or twice a year. And I still think that has a place for foliar application. So that's, that'll be you know, brewing in the brewers for 24 hours, you know, doing the whole um, mixture of ingredients, looking at it through the microscope, going, yeah, it's time to put it on. And then we have to screen that out because we spray it through much finer nozzles. So we're still screening some of that out. And we're, we're doing that a couple of times a year in the orchard. Okay. So if you are brewing compost tea, like you just said there, what kind of ingredients are you putting in additional? Is it more uh, mycorrhizae? Is it like uh, rock powders? Is it like nu- nutrients? Or I know we always added a little bit of um, energy. So we were using molasses. Right, right. Yeah. So the, the, the main, the main um, ingredients in for the pastoral system will be compost, okay. seaweed. Okay. Yep. Um, seaweed's quite available in New Zealand. So we mm-hmm. use a seaweed. We use a little bit of fish. Um, and then we use a variety of these plant extracts. So I, I talked a little about making these ragwort extracts. We actually make them out of a number of different things. And uh, so we make a, a ragwort uh, we don't make ragwort extract anymore because there's none growing on the farm, but we do them out of thistles. We do them out of comfrey is a good one. Um, and we make some out of, of chipped wood too, things like poplar and casuarina. So we take all of those uh, liquids that come out of those um, extracts and we put those all into the mix. Okay. Okay. Um, and we have used molasses a little bit in the past, have not used so much at the moment. Um, and then 
occasionally we will use some rock dusts. We've kind of come and gone on the rock dust. They, they work quite well in the sprayer. Um, there's a, a silica clay um, product here that, that we've used a bit and another uh, composted uh, paramagnetic rock that's, um, com that is no longer being produced, but we used to use it was composted with fish. So we use okay. a little bit of those, those rock materials and a bit of lime. Okay. All right. So all of that. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Today's tip of the week is sponsored by Harvest Hosts. And I am here with Molly. Molly, talk to us about Harvest Hosts. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, Harvest Hosts is a membership platform that connects over right around 200,000 RVers at this time. So our membership is growing quickly. Um, we are here to talk a little bit more about the host location opportunities. So we reach out to farmers like yourself, farm locations to ask if you'll provide an overnight stay for our members. It's all we ask for you to become a host. So it's a cost-free opportunity in our member code of conduct that our memberships have to um, sign before they become a member. They're encouraged to spend at least $20 at the host locations. So our host locations are able to sell their products. Um, if they're a distillery or a winery, do tastings. And so additional income and additional revenue is brought back to the locations. So it's a super simple setup. We just ask for our har harvest host locations to have space for an overnight stay and that's it. And so what does an overnight stay spot consist of? How big does it need to be? I'm assuming it has to be something that like a, a uh, camper or an RV can move into, correct? Sure. It's honestly just flat space. So we want to make sure obviously that our largest RVs can park um, and get in and out. So if mm -hmm. a harvest location only has enough room for one space, um, that's perfect. That's a great way to start, um, test out the program and see if you have additional spaces with land or parking lot um, opportunities later in the future. But really it's just that flat land, flat service so that they can get in and get out and just the turnaround radius that we need to turn them out and send them on their way when they're done staying at a host. Very cool. And then obviously they can reach out to you if they have questions about if their space is big enough and you can obviously Google map it. Absolutely. And they can monitor what kind of space they have. So we have a kind of a drop down feature um, on our application and on our host profile for them to kind of highlight if they can only do the smaller RVs um, with the hookups or if they can host up to our larger models. Um, so they definitely have the opportunity to monitor um, who comes in and out. Very cool. Then um, what, let's talk about the benefits that you're seeing from compost tea on the, the land. What's, what, what is usually like the number one thing people say, oh my gosh, I'm seeing X or Y? Yeah, well, um, one is, of course, the, all of the weeds that have disappeared, the ragwort, yeah. the thistle. I mean, and, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that was, um, that's probably one of the biggest ones people notice. We, we went, raise extremely healthy animals here with no supplement. Um, one other thing we do add into the both into the compost into the compost mixes is seawater, okay, because we're twenty minutes from the sea, so we use seawater quite a bit, and we add that into the mixes, and we also feed that to the directly to the animals. That's the only supplement that the animals get; they get straight seawater. We have a traveling trough that moves around the farm, and the animals absolutely love that. So probably the the indication is one just a really healthy environment, you know. No, no fertilizers here in 20 years now. In the early days, the, the locals will come in and say, oh yeah, right, you'll fall over in about four or five years. They can't say that anymore. Um, yeah. and we, we have pretty uh, traditional stocking rates. So we stock the same as the conventional farms do. Um, animals are very healthy. Weeds are not an issue for us. Um, 
The other indicators that we've measured is we've done soil food web testing from the very beginning of when we started. So we know, and we've done BRICS testing and a few other, you know, like pH, electrical conductivity testing um, throughout the time we've been here. So in, in our soil food web test, we've increased the total biological biomass by about a thousand percent over the years we've been here. So that's just kind of a confirmation that we're really seeing things change. And the BRICS levels in the grassland, especially of were two and three when we started and we're consistently around 10 to 12. And Jenny did one yesterday in the paddock that we um, sown oats in and it was 22. Wow. So, you know, we're just seeing those indicators um, telling us that we're on track. And, and, and so I guess that's, um, I guess, you know, we're, we're productive, we're profitable. I guess those are all measures of success of some sort. Yeah, that's amazing. So then um, with the animals, I'm assuming that you're not seeing a lot of, you know, vet bills or, you know, having to, to, to baby them in any way. They're just that great quality grass they're eating. Um, they're, they're, they're thriving. Absolutely. There's, yeah. we've hardly ever had a vet on the farm. I a few in the early days when we were mm-hmm. in, in transition mm-hmm. with the system. Lost a few early day animals. We haven't lost an animal in years now, have we? Um, So they, you know, they come in as yearlings of what, about six months old, seven months old? Yeah. And um, then they stay for a year and a half. Uh, A year, a year, yeah, a year. Um, And then they go back. So um, we've got this, one of the same grazers for quite a number of years. They're super happy with what they get back. So again, all just kind of indicators that you must somewhat on the right track. And how many um, cow equivalents are on the property at any one time, typically? We've got a hundred, 90 okay. this year. Yeah. And that's on our grazing platform is a, is a hundred acres. Okay. Wow. So, so you're, animal, yeah. Right. yeah, you're running yeah. about a, cow, a 350, 60, 360 cow days. Um, very cool. And um, obviously that system works for you. Do you have any of your own cows like for, you know, meat or milk yourselves, or is it just what those cows are coming in and out? No, just the cows coming in and out. We've, we've looked at raising our own animals. And um, the thing about the dairy grazers is the dairy, the dairy farmers send you a check every month, right? Uh-huh. So it's real dependable, consistent income yes. that you count on. Whereas with all of the other things we do, they're much more seasonally variable. You mm. never know. You have a pretty good idea what the lemon income is going to be through the year. Um, and, you know, the other bits and pieces that we do. Um, but it's real consistent. So we kind of said, well, why would we change? You know, you don't have to lose many animals to lose your profitability in buying yeah. and selling. You're subject to the market. So that's just kind of our, our staple ground, really. Absolutely. Gotcha. Um, so let's talk a little bit the, the, the social media side of this. What kinds of themes are you trying to bring in when you are, um, you know, posting on, on the, the, the media platforms? I try to hit a lot of the, um, you know, the, the integral practices of the farm. Um, mm-hmm. And we have a lot of followers that are you know, biodynamic growers and organic growers and very interested in, I get a lot of feedback about what, you know, what our practices are and what we're doing. Um, and so I try to, I, I've tried more and more over the years to, in, to speak to that a bit more, which involves a, a bit more back and forth because I don't have all of the information um, always, but uh, 
try just trying to give that because uh, people are always very interested in what, what we're doing and what we're up to and often the kind of the the ins and outs and the details as well um so definitely definitely that side of it um we're also big on humor <laughs> um, okay yeah uh certainly how i was raised and uh just it's something that helps engage people i think and and yeah. also mom take mom takes a lot of really beautiful photos of the farm because the farm is very Mm-hmm. very stunning um and so yeah it's a it's a combination of all the things and um we we get a lot of really great feedback and people are just kind of um very interested and it's one of those things that it's i find that the the online farming community is a lot nicer to be in than i'm sure you know than a lot of other online communities and there are a lot yes. of great online communities but um the the organic farmer biodynamic world is very uh, engaged and very kind and very uh, interested. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah, I absolutely agree. Cool. Um, yeah, bringing humor is something I, you know, it's not that we weren't raised with some humor, but it never was as a big thing in our family. So that just doesn't come out in like what we, and I, I think that's actually a great thing too, because they say the people that laugh more live longer. So I probably yeah. need this to be. <laughs> it's It's true. Yes. So actually, yeah, we actually go ahead. I said there's plenty of humor in our family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, it's something that um, you know our farm managers are pretty uh, sarcastic, and, and and so we've actually had a lot more of that going around, which is kind of fun. Um, but we just we're hiring right now for more team members, and one of the things I always try to do is in the hiring process put something that takes attention to detail. And so they have, we have a pretty extensive um, interview they fill out with the X prop personality types and all this kind of stuff. So if they get through that, they're probably like, whoo, this is good. They hit submit. The next page that pops up is like, thank you for submitting the form. And then there's a line there that says, hey, send a vegetable or a farming knock, knock joke to my email. <laughs> So last night I was actually on another podcast and um, I was, I was actually, and again, I, I, this, I shouldn't do this when I'm on podcasts, especially when I'm the one, you know, being interviewed, but I had my email up and an email popped and it was a vegetable knock, knock joke. And, or, and I was just like, who the heck would send me this? And then I realized, <laughs> oh, I asked people to send me this. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, so we are trying to do it. Um, and uh, I think it does bring a little bit more, you know, fun back into, especially because farming's hard. And so anytime you can have humor, anytime you can have fun with that, and really, I think that's important. Yeah, we do too. Um, my uh, dad's mom, my grandma, she's not, just turned 96. Oh, wow. And uh, humor is a big one of her philosophy. She's not a farmer herself, but uh, she is, she is big on laughter. And mm-hmm. we definitely get that from her. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit because you've got the business now where you're building these um, these these tea applicators or the compost applicators. Um, what was kind of that you know thought process or just the the struggles of building that business or, or getting into that? Because that's complete. That is obviously a support industry for farmers, but it's also a new business you're starting. It just grew out of the farm, really. You know, we we built machines for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We did what we wanted to do. We had, there's a lot of farm field days here. It's a real common and very cool thing that, that the New Zealand farmers do is they get together at somebody's farm and just look around mm-hmm. and they tell you mm-hmm. what you're doing right, tell you what you're doing wrong. And we had one of those days here and a couple of people looked at what we were doing and they said, can you build me one? And, mm. we built it. and it just grew from there really. Um, and it's, it, it's not a huge 
well, it's become very busy lately. Um, there's been a shot in the arm, a couple of things that have happened here and worldwide that have, have totally changed the landscape. The term regenerative farming has had a huge impact in New Zealand for changing people's minds about how they farm. Um, that along with a whole list of government regulations that are coming down the, down the mm-hmm. pipeline, regulating what farmers can and cannot do. So um, we've been amazingly busy, busy in the last year. But prior to the last year, you know, we were doing, you know, maybe a half a dozen machines a year. So it was a part of the business. It wasn't mm-hmm. an overwhelming part of the business. But in the last year, it's totally changed. And so... Um, and I think um, part of it is due, well, there's a couple of interesting parts of it. One is just building machinery for farmers. Um, but the other thing we do, which is a little bit unique to other uh, manufacturers, is we actually help people build their own. Oh, interesting. So we'll, we'll, we get requests, people have old sprayers or they don't want to spend the money. And, mm-hmm. and so we'll guide them through a process and sell them the parts they need to either refit an old sprayer to be able to do what ours does. And we actually, and I think this is largely due to the, this Koya's work with the social media, we send parts to Canada, to the US, to the UK and Australia now um, for people to do home, to, you know, home built designs. So that's been a really cool part of what we've done because we get to engage with farmers from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's only, well, there's just really three of us here on site. We've got a new guy starting um, in a couple of weeks. So, um, you know, we have all of the manufacturing done locally and then we do the assembly here on site. And so it's been a real, um, you know, localized um, development. You know, we had our own pumps designed that are built in New Zealand. The, the frames are built here. So that's another part we really like. We like being part of that local economic environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a uh, machine shop literally across the street from us, and uh, we've taken stuff over there. and And it's just great to have you know that local community that you're building um, of craftsmen and people that just love to do good work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now those relationships—that's really what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, if you think about farming in general, it's all about relationships. It's your relationship mm-hmm. with the land, plants, with the animals, with the people around you. I mean, that's life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah, absolutely. So, where do you see your the, the business moving forward, and what's what do you, what do you, where do you see the growth happening? Let's see. How often do we have this discussion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to say. You know, we for a long time we've tried to get some other people on the farm to kind of build a succession, and mm-hmm. um, it I don't know how many different people have come and gone. We've got a new guy starting in a couple of weeks. Got our fingers crossed. That he might stay around for a while. Um, and we made Sequoia interview him to make sure he was okay. Okay. Stamp of approval. She told us that we were really bad at picking people, so that we were <laughs> they don't approval. they don't have a great track record. <laughs> yeah, we have a really bad track record of hiring people. But um, yeah, and I think uh, Scott was a little bit nervous about having to be interviewed by the daughter, but it, I think it worked okay. He said when he, when uh, Sequoia wrote back to me and said, yeah, it's okay. Uh, he does believe the world is round. So <laughs> that was the final step. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, you, 
you build something over time, don't you? And, and you really want to see it continue. And we were very fortunate that some people came and took over Randy Gardens and it's still going today. Um, yeah. And that, that would be a cool interview for you to do with those guys because they're doing great stuff too. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where, where it's going to go. You know, there is a, we, we've, we've created a, a, an infrastructure here really with the, especially with the trees that now mm-hmm. once the trees start to come online, there is an income stream that goes on indefinitely mm. um, as do the animal grazing and whatnot. So yeah, don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just going, going a day at a time, which is, I think, really what you do in farming, isn't it? You make a plan and you walk out the door and everything changes. So. <laughs> At least that's how it works here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. right. No, it's... We love what we do and we just um, live, live each day to day being strong and healthy and want stay healthy so we can keep doing what we do. That's the thing, I suppose. But um, I guess at some point, yeah, you'd have to move things on. But yeah, it's, it's a, we're at a tricky st- stage in the future at some point, I guess. Yeah, well, you've, you've built a system. And I think, you know, that's a lot of what we talk about on, the, on the, the podcast. A lot of farms, I just saw actually a post in one of the groups. A lot of farmers, you know, they do two years and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I can't do it anymore. And they quit. Um, actually, I've got, you know, one of, um, one of my clients who's been incredibly successful and in two years, they've built a business that almost is self-sustaining and has actually given him back a lot of his initial investment, which is blows my mind. Um, Mm. but he's like, oh my gosh, you're going to have to quit. I can't make this work anymore. And I'm like, you're only two years in, I was like, most business days take three to five years to really be profitable. And you are already, I mean, like his, yeah, where he is and the location he's got and what he's got going on is, it's just incredible. Mm. Um, but once you get to that, you know, that system and once you get that flywheel going, like you have with your farm, it feels like you've got the systems in place that, as you said, mm. you know, even when the trees come on board, it's just going to make a whole nother level of income on that yeah. business. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you've got it figured out. You've got it. Uh, I'm sure there's, you know, decisions you have to make and things you're changing and fixing, but you've got that system in place, which everything is really just going along. And you can, as you said, you can, you know, we know how much income is going to come in from this and how much is coming from yeah. the, the lemons and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we could grow lemons here. That would be pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, where where are you? Uh, we're in Southwest Ohio, so um, we get down to I don't know what it is in Celsius, but Fahrenheit. We get down to almost zero Fahrenheit, which is probably minus fifteen, minus eighteen Celsius. Yeah. Let me just look yeah, that yeah. up real quick. Well, you can come and see us and have a lemon. <laughs> well, it's funny you said that because my farm manager was like, "Well, Michael, you've got to take me to these farms because I've got to get a well-rounded education." <laughs> <laughs> And I said yes. Maybe in January we'll we'll hit the uh, we'll hit the international circuit. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. A little tricky to get in the country at the moment, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I think you know your comment about getting systems work. You know, getting your systems in place is really important. You know, we we spend a lot of time in the early days here just getting the infrastructure right. You know, getting the water mm-hmm. in place, getting the fences in place. You know, building facilities to so that we could do the work that we needed to do. And yeah, that's a couple of three years just in getting that done, you know. So you got you've got to stick with it over time. But you, you know, we see a lot of people. We saw this in Utah. People would come and see what we were doing in in, and they say, "Wow, 
you know, you guys are doing really great. And then they'd try it. And after a couple of years, they'd give up because they yeah. do hard work. So, mm -hmm. you know, you have to be committed and passionate about mm -hmm. that's really that's what true. you want to be doing or you're not going to make it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to stick with it. It's going to take, um, yeah, I like to tell people three to five years is where you really should start being able to do, go full time and make the profit. Um, yeah. And then after that, it's a flywheel that just keeps going. Yeah, well, and I, you know, I look back at, at what we did at Ranui and I, I look at, at what they're doing now with a CSA because we had a CSA there, one of the, the first ones in the, in the state. And, mm -hmm. You know, there's room for lots of those small operations around. Um, you know, you only have to develop a, a, a following of maybe 50 to 100 people to really make a living on a mm -hmm. small acreage. And, and that, that's really doable if you've got the, you know, if you're willing to work pretty hard and, you're, and you've got to have the, a, quite a wide range of skills too. You've got to have the personal skills. You've got to have some technical skills. You've got to be pretty broad in your skill base, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to be interested in learning. I mean, it sounds like your journey with the compost tea, um, you know, that's been what, 20 years plus? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, 20 years plus. And now you're just finally got the product. You said in the last year that has really exploded for you. So, um, you know, really made that into a business. So it really, yeah, it, it can take time to develop. I think a lot, yeah, it's done another podcast. A lot of people love to say you're an instant success and they don't see the decades. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And, and also, Steve and I, we're, we're a team. We work to mm -hmm. do things, you know, on the farm, completely worked as a team the whole Trip, whole trip. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we divide and conquer. We don't, you know, Jenny has all her areas that she takes care of and I have different areas that I take care of. And that's, that's how we get the job done. Well, we certainly get the job yeah, done. We do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts for our audience before we head out? This has been great. I've, we learned so much about the, the compost tea and just your business model and all of that. Um, I guess, I guess the only other thing is that, you know, um, probably the part that interests that I find stimulating is that there's so much innovation in that you can do on a small farm. Mm. You know, there's so many things to figure out and, and there's opportunities for small farmers to um, create sideline businesses through innovation as well. And that's something I think people forget about because probably every day or certainly multiple times per year every farmer comes up with an idea that was that, that helps the efficiency of their business and there's probably a lot of people that could utilize and share that information around not that you have to create a business but create mm -hmm. a shared system in a community that that shares information too yeah so you're just talking about how they're just the everyone has new ideas and how do we get that out to more people or just sharing that out there yeah absolutely yep yep and, you know, and, it, and it's been great to have Sequoia come back on board with, you know, her input, you know, she, um, she knows us and, you know, she can put a spin on things that, that we don't understand. And that's been an important thing to have a presence for us in the social mm -hmm. media. Um, I think even mm -hmm. though it's, 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 it's constant, people see it, it definitely generates a, a presence for us. And that's, it's been mm -hmm. a, a really good yeah, part too. And, and kind of essential in this day and age, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's reaching new customers and just sharing the story of what's going on. I, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of for us, the twofold aspect is, you know, obviously we're trying to reach new people, but it's also yeah, the people we've already reached 
how do you really share, you know, we're local, we're organic, we grow what we sell, all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah because farming, you can be quite isolated farming. And I think it's good to have a feeling of community. It's for mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah, which we never had in Utah. No. No, no. we're not for a long time. No. Yeah. Well, you were, you were pioneers out there. Mm, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Sequoia, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. It's been really great for me to kind of jump back in and, and feel a bit more involved in the farm. Uh, as mentioned previously, it wasn't something I was particularly interested in when I was a teenager, especially. Um, but I, I'm a costumer here in Toronto. I, I work in film and television and in theater, and um, I've gotten really into uh, natural dyes recently, and I've grown my first mm. crop of, uh, of indigo, Japanese indigo, and which I just actually processed yesterday. Um, so that's okay. been a really interesting thing for, for me to do because it's, it's a real hybrid of what I kind of grew up around growing the, growing the plant material, and then it ferments, and I actually aerated it yesterday, which reminded me of you know, my, my dad's machines and everything that he does. So it's, uh, it's interesting for me, but, uh, yeah. It's coming full circle then for you. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And and then, um, uh, you know, I learn new things all the time that I, I don't know just from the, the stories and stuff that go up on the social media. So that's, uh, great as well. It's a constant stream of knowledge and these two know so much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you three so much for coming on. I know we're spanning, actually it's only two time zones because I think you're directly straight above me, Sequoia. Um, But uh, it's been uh, fascinating getting to know you guys in the farm and uh, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.